Good morning, Parkview Church. Is anybody grateful that his mercy is more? Oh my goodness, we're not starting out this way. Is anybody grateful that his mercy is more? Oh, okay. I didn't like the tone we were starting out on there. I mean, you have to start out on the right tone. I have to start out on the right tone, so let's get this right, okay? So anyway, it's good to be here worshiping with you officially. I'm getting settled into my office. That's been a, a, an interesting process. I already had a moment where I couldn't find a, a book. I would know right in my old office where it was. Uh, I still haven't found it. Maybe I didn't bring it. I don't know. <laughs> We're getting settled into our new home, and my wife Charmaine has done a wonderful job of arranging things there. Again, I have no idea where anything is, but she does, hopefully, anyway, when I need it. The Lord has been good to us. We're continuing to trust him with the sale of our home in Illinois. The market has slowed down pretty dramatically there, although we have had uh, some showings and I believe have one tomorrow, so appreciate your prayers in that regard. I've been going back weekly just to take care of things there, and I don't want to be distracted by that. It was certainly hard to leave our last church built some deep, deep relationships over the years. Built over, they're built over that time. They're built in times of trial. They're built in times of victories. They're built around birth. They're built around death. Built around seeing God move in mighty ways while knowing, loving, and following Jesus Christ together. The good news is for you, Parkview, is that you now have a church in Illinois that's praying for you very faithfully. Parkview Church, I look forward to getting to, to know you. You've already been very welcoming to our family, and we appreciate that. We'll do our best to learn your names, but please extend grace in that matter. It's a delight to be planning to serve with you. I'll be serving side by side with many of you and even assisting you as you serve in, in times ahead. But we will celebrate what God is going to do in our midst and what he does. Understand I'll be spending some time uh, and, and effort observing ministries here. Uh, many of you have ideas already of what you want done and how you want things changed and, and be patient as I get to know you and get to know the ministries here and get to know our staff team. Again, pray for me as I take on that role. I'm certain that you are all very grateful for the job that your pastors have done in bringing you the Word of God every week. These men, I believe, have done a wonderful job. I've been following along uh, virtually. The good news is you'll still get opportunities to hear them preach one of my core values is that uh, ministry should not be built around any one personality or, or individual, and that's not a culture I think is healthy. We are members of the body of Christ, and we will serve him together. Amen? Amen. Well, you're responsive now. I like it. <laughs> the rain had you, had you hold, held up a little bit. Today, we're going to be sharing in the Lord's Supper together after the message and that's always a time to reflect on and to remember Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you to start doing that now, even as I speak, so that you're ready when that time comes. 
This morning, I'm going to continue on in the teachings of the parables of Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, and we'll be there in a moment. Before I do that, I want to call your minds uh, back to last week's messages that you heard here or at, at East Campus, the parable of the unmerciful merciful servant. I so appreciate the job that both preachers did with presenting those messages. And the reason I'm calling your mind back to it is that church, far too often Christians are delighted to be the recipients of grace and forgiveness but sometimes can be slow in extending it. My hope for you is that you're here today both aware of and appreciative of the freedom that forgiveness provides, both forgiveness received and extended. Today's text, the, the main idea here is pretty straightforward right in the passage, is that things are different in the kingdom of heaven. The first will be last, and the last first. I would suggest to you that today's parable is one that causes many North Americans some angst. It doesn't sit right with us. It feels uncomfortable. It's counterintuitive, if you will. As you've been reminded this summer, these teachings of Jesus, these parables, really help us understand him. His use of parables was extraordinary, and this one is no exception. Look with me now at Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 1. We'll read the first 10 verses for now. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more because each of them but each of them received a denarius. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you with a spirit of confession. We come to you with that spirit of praise, humbly honoring you, for you are holy. You are the righteous one. Father, we ask now that you would guide us as we look at your word Lord, may your spirit do his work. Lord, may our minds and hearts be attentive, and may you teach us to be responsive to your word. Father, we dedicate it to you now, and we ask you to be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, this is a little bit uncomfortable. It just doesn't seem right. And based upon that, 
That thought alone should draw our attention, especially because the first words we read in this parable are, for the kingdom of heaven is like. So if this parable causes us some angst, and the very beginning of the parable is, for the kingdom of heaven is like, it really should cause us to say, whoa, what's going on here? If Jesus presents the parable with the goal of helping people understand what the kingdom of heaven is like, or how things are in God's economy, or what his ways are like, then we should really want to understand. But as we want to understand, as we follow on in this parable and even further, we suddenly become uncomfortable with what he's describing. We, we, we don't necessarily like the picture. Now, I'm going to say something that seems obvious. I want you to engage your minds here today as I preach. Now, that's normal, right? But I also want you to engage your heart with this teaching. I believe sometimes we can be a little bit technical, a little bit clinical in our approach to a teaching such as this. And maybe you're sitting here today going, I know this parable, I've already got a handle on this, I already get it. I want to encourage you to not let information insulate you from this. Don't let knowledge get in the way. Let yourself feel this one. Lean into the sense of injustice and the sense of inequity that you pick up here. I encourage this only because that was the response that Jesus was clearly trying to invoke in his original audience. He wanted them to feel the tension of it. Maybe some of you already felt your blood pressure increasing a little bit as you considered how unfair this is, especially if you know the rest of the parable. Maybe that's true because it's not hard for you to call to mind some moment or some occasion where something was unfair to you in the past. You were passed over for a promotion and someone far less qualified or someone who does a whole lot less work maybe got that promotion. Or your work or your labor had gone unappreciated or unnoticed. Maybe there's some sense of, of inequity just even in the family you were born into or the struggles that you have that maybe someone else does not have or illness. In those moments, if the cry of your heart was, Lord, I deserve more. Or I deserve better, Lord. Then I want to encourage you to let yourself sit in that feeling as we examine this text. This was a culture that, that knew the kind of work involved in this particular parable. They knew the importance of it. It was a culture that most people needed daily work for daily provisions. The day was defined as 6 a.m. being the first hour of the day and 6 p.m. being the final hour, the 12th hour of the day. It was traditional for the poor to stand in the marketplace waiting for a landowner with some crops who would come and hire these people as day workers. Those that didn't get hired right away would hang around and with hopes that maybe they would get a chance because they were desperate for the money to care for themselves, for their family, for their loved ones. A day's wage was a denarius. Leviticus 19 states, 
that the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. We read something similar in Deuteronomy 24, verse 15. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. These people needed income. They needed it that day. They needed to eat. They needed to feed the family. Now, I want you to understand that original audience here would have reacted to this parable with objection. Jesus verbally paints a picture here that, that causes his listeners frustration. And understand, this is a powerful way of teaching, a powerful way of grabbing attention. It might even remind you of the story of Nathan confronting King David. You remember that from 2 Samuel? David discontent with the women in his life apparently, sees Bathsheba, pursues her. You know the story. She's then pregnant. He brings Uriah home from the battle lines hoping to hide his sins. He doesn't. Uriah is ultimately pushed to the front. They back away. He dies. David then goes and takes Bathsheba as his wife. But you remember the approach? Nathan approaches David with the story of two men. A man who is wealthy, who has many herds and flocks. And a man who is poor and has one ewe lamb. And the rich man has a visitor, and the rich man goes and takes that one ewe lamb away from the poor man and prepares it and serves it to his guest. Remember the reaction of, of David? Because it grabbed his heart. The, for, the former shepherd boy, now king. What does he say? As surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And then Nathan does it, right? You are that man. It was the injustice that stirred the heart of David there, and it stirs the objection. You see, justice we understand, but grace is foreign. A couple weeks ago, Elder Len Brooks did a wonderful job with the, the parable of the prodigal son. There's injustice there, too, that creates that tension, right? Here in chapter 20, the parable starts out fine. At 6 a.m., we have a master of the house, the vineyard owner. He seeks workers, and he, and he makes a reasonable deal with them. And then the third hour, 9 a.m., he goes out and he finds more. And he says, listen, I'll pay you what's right. At the sixth hour, noon, strange time to be seeking day worker, but he, but he does it and, it, and they agree. The ninth hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, he does it again. Very unlikely time to be hired. And then at the 11th hour, he does it again. Nobody's hiring at the 11th hour. Now, it's important to, to, to realize that as we analyze a teaching such as this, we put our emphasis on understanding the point that Jesus is trying to make over trying to understand the specifics of the parable. It's a story for emphasis. Disputing the logic of late hires is really... Uh, of little value in comparison to understanding why is Jesus describing a scenario like this? 
We could go into the path of trying to figure out, is he making references to the, to the Gentiles being invited into salvation? We're not going to go there this morning. But he says, listen, the kingdom of heaven is like. So the tension begins here in verse 8. Go back and look at verse 8 with me, Matthew 20, verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now, this alone seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it? If you've been working all day, you've got to wait for those who arrived late for you to get your pay. I mean, it would be logical if you wanted those who started later to not see how much more the ones who work first are going to get. I mean, in that case, it would make sense. Also, literary, literary context is so essential when it's studying Scripture. Because the end of verse 8 gives us a little clue as to what Jesus is, is driving at here or what he's trying to teach with this parable. You see, if we go back a chapter, in chapter 19, Jesus is approached by a rich young man. The man asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. The man asks further, which ones? Jesus' list of the commandments begins with, chapter, with the fifth one and goes through the tenth one, which all fall under the whole idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting that Jesus does not say commandments one through four, as there in regard to you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The man says, I've kept all these. What now do I still lack? And Jesus says it to him, right? Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and follow me. He went away sorrowful. You see, Jesus knew where the treasure of this man's heart lied. Not in God, but in his possessions. He was all about God, but not if he had to sacrifice his possessions. The man had two gods. God is a jealous God. Man shall have no other God than him. So he was breaking the first commandment. But the connection comes as we go a little further here because when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says, it's not that it's impossible for a rich man to be righteous, but that it's very difficult. And his possessions can easily become an idol to him. The righteous worship God and God alone. And riches can tempt one to be led astray. Now, the disciples, greatly astonished, they say, who then can be saved? And Jesus replies, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Man cannot follow the law perfectly, but God, who is merciful, will be our help. We turn away from self and the world and look at him. For by him alone, it is possible. But now look at verse 27, where we start to see the connection. 1927. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. 
what then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Catching the connection? See, Jesus had gone through all that, and Peter's mind starts to turn, and he's thinking about the fact that this rich man would not leave behind what he had to follow Jesus, and then he starts doing the math going, wait a minute, we've left everything. And he had to ask the question, okay, then what do we get, right? Peter's going, we've done that, what do we get? And Jesus tells him that incredible thing about the thrones, and that they would receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. For those who were first will be last, and those who were last will be first. This indicates that the vineyard parable seems to be included in Jesus' answer to Peter's question. Look back with me at chapter 20, verse 9. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received an denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last workers only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Their assumption clouded their idea of what is fair. They object to what they originally agreed was acceptable. And why? It's in that phrase, you made us equal. You made the late starters equal to us. Again, they were okay with the original deal, and they got what the original deal was. But these late starters, they have no business getting what we got, being the recipients of what we've received. And I want to suggest to you here that we see the danger of comparisons and assumptions. I want you to think about this for a moment. If the foreman had paid them all separately... There would have been no problem here, would there? There would have been an assumption of equitable pay. But Jesus clearly wanted his listeners, he wanted you and I to hear all of it and to feel that tension. That's why I asked you to let yourself, let your heart be involved here. Think back to 19 where there's, there's Peter's question and there's an innocence to Peter's question but at the heart of it is, Jesus, if you value people giving up things for you, then how much do you value us, right? It's reasonable. And Jesus made it clear that they can expect blessings and reward, but they should not be stunned how God may choose to reward others. 
Don't miss that. Sadly, even in the church realm, comparisons often create envy and bitterness and pride. All too often we might refer to our own resume of righteousness. Ever done this? Mentally work through the list of why God likes you. And you're going through that list in your mind. You're going, I read my Bible every day. I have a prayer list and I follow it. I'm faithful to church. I'm faithful to my spouse. I honor my parents. I faithfully give of my time and my talents to the church. I give a tithe of my income to the church. I even give over and above to extra things. I share my faith. I've been serving a really long time. And in the recesses of your mind, there's this thought, God must be really happy with me. It's your resume of righteousness. Maybe what I just said doesn't resonate with you at all. Maybe you're in the completely opposite realm. And you come into a place like this, and all you can think is, I bet, I bet Jesus really loves her. I bet God's really impressed with him. I barely know anything about the Bible. Wow, those people, they know a lot. Yet, the kingdom of heaven flows in opposition to our natural thinking. The system of law, it seems natural to us, but grace is foreign to us. And God ultimately deals with us according to his character, not our personal merit. Look with me at verse 13. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This may be hard for you to truly embrace, but God doesn't owe you anything. God does not owe us blessings. 
He does not owe us success. He doesn't owe us good health. He doesn't owe us salvation. God doesn't owe us anything. You see, he deals with us according to his character. A few minutes ago, I had you call to mind maybe moments where you felt like things were unfair in the past. And again, whatever it was, something happened at work or in the home or situations that you are enduring. And you found yourself struggling. Going, I deserve more. I deserve better. This isn't right. It isn't fair. Jesus said that the landowner said, take what belongs to you and go. Take what belongs to you and go. A few nights ago, and in the evening, I believe we were trying to arrange things in the house. And my phone rang and I had it on me, so I pulled it out and looked at it. I answered the phone and a familiar recording started. You are receiving a call from an inmate from a correctional facility. The recording went on to tell me all the legal requirements and all the things not to do and not allowed. I signaled to Charmaine that I would need to take the call. You see, it's a call that I receive about once every three months. It's a 15-minute call, so we've got to talk fast. It's my friend named Morgan. I had the privilege of leading Morgan to Christ probably 20 years ago already. I started to work with him from time to time. There were seasons when he would do really good and seasons that addictions would pull him off course. Addictions haunted him, and as a result, he is currently serving a life sentence for murder. No possibility of parole. Why do I share this with you? Two reasons. In one of my many visits to see him, I sat in front of a weeping man, man who is now clear in mind and so broken over what he'd done. And through the tears, the question just kept coming Can I be forgiven? Is there enough grace for me? The second reason I share that with you is the value of his prayers. In the course of our conversation just days ago, he reminded me that he prays for me every evening at 7 o'clock. 
He prays for my family and he prays for my church, which you, ne- you are now. And if I can just stop and be real with you for a minute and be honest, uh, let me make a confession to you. When, when he reminds me of that, there's a part of me that struggles with that. And there's a part of me that has stopped and said, God, can't, can't you give me with somebody with a little better resume of righteousness to pray for me every night at seven? <laughs> Honestly. Can't you give me somebody that's going to pray for me every, every night at seven who, 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 is, who is faithful? Who lives it out the way, way it's supposed to be lived out. And even just nights ago, I found myself spinning that around and rejoicing because we have a God of grace. Rejoicing because I could look him in the eyes and say, Morgan, we have a God who forgives. We have a God of mercy and a God of grace. And he gives in ways that seem inequitable. And in part of that confession too, just even of that call the other night and how how I found myself responding again to this idea that he prays for me every night at 7 o'clock. I found myself just stopping and saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that someone like him who truly understands and embraces grace and is reminded every day of his sin, reminded every day of his need for mercy, is is willing to go on his knees before his God that he loves and appreciates so much and ask that he would move mightily in my life, in my family, and in my church. That's why I share it with you. Third reason, because if I lead you to Christ and disciple you, you could be at risk of going to prison. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's very inappropriate. Could there be times when your attitude could cause God to want to say to you, take what belongs to you and go? I've been good to you. And how is it not enough? Take what belongs to you and go. You get the spirit of the landowner there, don't you? Take it and go. I'm tired of talking to you. I will give to whom I will give to. It's with that spirit that I want to lead us into a time at the Lord's Supper. I asked you to start thinking about it early because I don't want us to suddenly go, okay, now this is time when we remember Jesus. 
In the very beginning, we're doing that. We're gathering in his name, and we're gathering because of what he has done. We're gathering because his righteousness is given to us through faith. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and we do it as a body of believers. Scripture tells us that it's important to prepare our hearts for this time. 1 Corinthians 11, we read, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. If your child is with you, I ask you to be helping them decide whether or not to be involved. Paul also reminds us that Jesus said to do it in remembrance of me. Do you remember Jesus this morning? We partake in these symbols, these reminders of what he's done, that he took on flesh and went to the cross for us, that he bled and died on our behalf. Would you take a moment just to silently pray and prepare your heart, and then I will pray with you. Heavenly Father, we pause to reflect on our Messiah. We pause to give you praise and thank you that it was your plan to send your Son. That you wouldn't leave us in our desperate condition. That you wouldn't leave us without hope because the law was too much. Because sin had gripped us. Father, we thank you that Jesus took on flesh. And Jesus, we thank you for being willing to do it. To go to the cross for us. Physically hang there. To take the wrath of the Father on yourself. that your blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, we remember you now. We confess that we're not worthy of it, but in gratitude, we say thank you. You are so good. And we offer you our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus had given thanks, he broke bread and he shared it with his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup 
is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul writes, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.